When we approach the Scriptures, we, in the back of our minds, realize that we're hearing the voice of God. We attend, we're attentive to the voice of God. We listen carefully. Another example of Spurgeon in the great Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. A little boy was cupping his ears with his hands and his mother next to him was giving him the elbow. Get your hands to your side. And... uh, Spurgeon made note as the little boy responded to his mom, but God, he said, calls his people, and I don't want to miss the call. That's cute, isn't it? Well, we got our, our hands cupping our ears so that we ain't miss the call. We sung in one of the hymns today, I think it was, The Lord has been so good to me. Lord Jesus, wilt thou mercy show? And uh, it goes on to say that eventually we'll see him face with our own eyes, see him, I don't know how exactly it went. But we not only hear the Lord speak to us when we read the Word, but we see into his eyes. Are you looking into the eyes of the Lord? You don't have to wait to get to eternal glory before you can see into the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold... That's the word. So I invite your attention to John chapter 14 as we tread very holy ground. This is the night in which he will be betrayed to the hands of sinners. John chapter 14, in my estimation, is the great love chapter. Many of us may look to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as it being the great love chapter often used at weddings. And certainly that is the components and the elements of love. There's no doubt about it. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love suffereth wrong. Love vaunteth itself not or doesn't puff up. It's not proud. Love endures. Love bears hopes. Those certainly are very important elements of what love is when you get it down to the nitty-gritty. And we could go throughout the New Testament and the Old Bible especially and see images of love. But this chapter, this chapter is so powerful as it demonstrates the principles of the love of God. The principles. Now i got several heads this morning. One in which I believe uh, will be prominently displayed this morning is the peace of God. The principle of peace. Peace that is given through the love of God. We can see other portions of the Scripture here. We can see that it is the purpose-driven, this love, the principle of Christ's purpose for which He came is driven home to these disciples. We're in the upper room. The Lord's Supper has been finished. The feet washing service is over. The Lord is now teaching His disciples. At the end of this chapter, in verse 30, He will say, Arise, let us go hence. Now, there's no guarantee exactly what that means in terms of whether he just stood up or whether he pursued a course because we don't see him or hear about a geographical setting until further on in the 18th chapter where he crosses the brook Kidron over into the area where he will be betrayed. And so... My feeling is, as we read the 14th chapter of John coming back after the great 13th chapter, and then the 15th and 16th and 17th chapter are filled with wonderful, wonderful intimations of the Lord's love for His people. And in those particular chapters, I've often wondered, like the 15th and 16th and 17th, where along the path was He sharing this? with his disciples? Was he walking? Were they cut out in a space 
preserved from the fanfare of all that was going on in Jerusalem at that time. And the Lord had His disciples' attention mysteriously and spiritually so that He spoke these words directly to them. Now, they couldn't bear it all at this particular time. They could not bear it all. But what He did promise them is that they would be reminded of these truths once the Holy Spirit came. And so we're looking here on the 14th chapter at the great principles of God's love. And the first one, as I said, is a peace given. So read with me in the first verse, and I'll read the 27th verse. It said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And then it says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And then he repeats this, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. There's no doubt as you read the previous chapter. And by the way, the chapter designations like 14, 15, 13 are not in the original. So it's one blend. It's one complete sentence, if you will. It's one basic, unbroken line of thought. And what precedes this directly, what precedes this 14th chapter, letting not your heart be troubled, is the experience that we see of the foretelling of Peter's denial. And it's though as the Lord is looking, fastening his eyes on Peter the disciple, looking at him after having heard that he will deny the Lord. And he said, let not your heart be troubled. The Lord Jesus, he's standing as a man here. He's taking upon himself the shepherd role of the Messiah, the comforting role. A heart is broken. It has been foretold by the Master that Peter will deny the Lord. And yet Jesus doesn't rebuke him and chasten him as we often do. Jesus comforts him. Jesus knows what's in his heart. Jesus foresees what will eventually take place. I think sometimes that we feel in our troubles that we have escaped the vision, care, and concern of the Lord. Somehow our problems aren't important to the Lord. We're insignificant. We feel unqualified. But the Lord knows our needs. He can see deep into the recesses of our hearts. This scripture is not just for the Apostle Peter. This scripture is for all the disciples and for all of us today. And that's what I mean by the Word of God being enduring. It endures. It's a truth that passes from one generation to another. You can never wear it out. You can never get to the point where it's finished. I've used it up. There's nothing left. No, the Word of God endures. When He said, let not your heart be troubled... It certainly applied at that night, but it applies to us today, and we can receive of that. Now, if you read your commentaries, you notice the scriptures that says, Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And of Christ, excuse me, and of course, there's a lot of disambiguity uh, concerning this particular text. If you read a variety of uh, commentaries, they may say, Well, it's either imperative or it's indicative. They don't know which one it is. The RSV will take that ye out. They just remove the ye so that instead of being indicative, it is an imperative or a command. As if he's saying, believe in God. Okay. Whenever you see an imperative in the scriptures, it's usually presented first with a verb, an action word. For instance, in John 5, 39, it says... Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. He's giving them a command. Go ahead and search. But now if I place something ahead of that, like you search the Scriptures or ye search the Scriptures, then I'm making something that's an imperative indicative. The King James translators, I might add, are do it right. Because what they're doing here, they cover both the indicative and the imperative. Here's the imperative. Ye 
excuse me, here's the indicative. Ye believe in God. He's stating the purpose. He's stating the fact of it. He's stating what the disciples have in their heart. They have a belief in God. But now Jesus, in this great statement of, or that defines His majestic person, who He is, He's the Word, the incarnate Word, the Word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. He said, ye believe in God, believe also in me. So he's making that statement of equality with God. He did not think it robbery at all when he likens himself to God the Father. Because God and the Lord Jesus Christ together, the Father and I, he said in one place, are one. There's no mystery, mystery to us. We embrace that truth because the Bible teaches it. It conveys it. We accept it by faith. But we understand the reasoning to it. We understand that it behooved Christ to suffer these things for our sake. And we needed a Redeemer who was perfect. Because who else could stand in our stead? We're rotten sinners, condemned, unclean. Who among us could we have gotten a great man Uh, Our Hercules of some sort, some fictitious character who possibly from our vantage point was perfect in all ways. No, we would look a little further and find out that he too was born of a woman. Under sin, in sin did my mother conceive me, said David. No, there's no perfect specimen of the human race that could stand in our stead. It must be God himself in the person and form of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we view the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God. There's no element or degree of God in Him. He's veiled, obviously, in humiliation, but He was fully God. We see Him veiled in ways in which He might say, only the Father knows about His return. Or in other cases, when He thirsted or hungered or had no place to lay His head like other ways in which mankind find themselves in humiliation and shame. The Lord, the Lord did not, He was not relieved of any of those human infirmities in that sense. Yet the Bible says He was without sin. That's something we quite do not fathom or understand. But He's conveying something now. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because he's speaking about a peace, a divine peace that he gives. It's not as the world gives. Now it's interesting that he notes that the world gives peace. And peace is possible. Um, In other words, we can see it on this plane. And it affords humanity some good. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Once every year, the personal peace conference gets together. And all the great philosophers of the world, the religionists of the world come together and there's a melding of the minds, if you will, and they, these philosophers come and they speak about how they can have peace among mankind. Um, I know because I've listened to the Dalai Lama, a Buddhist, on uh, YouTube. You can listen to it yourself, some of the conferences and some of the things that they present in order for mankind to be at peace with one another. It's a good thing to see peace among the brotherhood of mankind. And yet we have to realize that the peace the world gives is very limited. There's limited on several fronts. It's local. In other words, it surrounds you and it doesn't endure. It may be spent, if you will, but it's from one generation to another. That peace may change based on circumstances. The other aspect of that particular peace that man gives, that the world gives, is that it's temporary. It doesn't last throughout eternity. You know, the joy and the happiness that you have in the service of the Lord will never give way. The same righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 and 17, are yours throughout eternity. Now... And forever. They will never cease. No matter how rotten the situation you may be in. And some of us are looking down 
in those older years when we find that our body is wasting away. We find out that we're going to be very and highly limited as to the things that we once enjoyed. The body parts are not working anymore, but we can still, because we serve God in our spirit, we can have the joy and the peace that passes all understanding of this mind. It is guaranteed to us because it is a divine peace and its originator, its originator is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Well, the kind of peace in the world is good, but you get it through education. If you look on some of these YouTube conferences, you'll see it. Education, the environment, government, because they need an arbiter of this peace. They need to enforce the peace. And you can see where it has a tendency to go. They need to control the masses in order to get the masses to agree to this peace, to keep the harmony, to have conformity of some kind. We all have to have some common core initiatives in terms of education. There needs to be some commonality, and somebody has got to be in control of it. It's not God, because it's the peace that the world gives. Whoever they put in charge... That's who dispenses that peace. But the interesting thing in this YouTube event is they use certain phrases that I just couldn't believe. Revelation. Personal intuition. That's why I call it, they call it personal peace. Somewhere in your heart, you will be educated and learn how to get along with one another. It's a good thing. But like I said, it's local and it's temporary. Other words like forgiveness, compassion, mercy are all a part of those peace processes. The interesting thing is, after having viewed these conferences year in and year out, is they leave something out that's very significant. They leave the prince of peace out, you see, because the Lord Jesus Christ represents divine peace from the Father. Worldly peace is that which is achieved through man, by man, and for man. It's a peace that is local and is temporary. It will not sustain itself beyond the grave. However tranquil it may be, it is a peace whose praise is of men, and it's not of God. We have the peace that passes all understanding because it's by God's divine source. It's by the Lord Jesus himself. Now, on this particular night... Even the Lord conveyed a troubled heart. Now, obviously, he is irresponsible to anything around him. If he moves, it's because of his own sovereign initiative. There's nothing outside of the Lord himself that could move him. He's not going to just start weeping because you're weeping. That's hap- that happens to me. I can see a brother or sister weep, and then I start to weep. But when the Lord is troubled in spirit, he does it by his own sovereign will. Because he's independent of circumstances. But he was troubled there early on when he, found, when, he, when he conveyed the fact that one of you shall betray me. Why wouldn't he be troubled? Judas would betray the Lord. Would you not feel in your heart troubled if somebody betrayed you? Somebody who was known to be a friend? Somebody who was numbered with your friends and yet betrayed you? Turned against you? conspired against you to take your life. You would be troubled. The Lord understands the troubled heart. Peter's heart as well was troubled. Notice what he said, Peter, in the previous chapter. Peter said to him, Lord, whither goest thou? And Jesus answered them, Whether I go, thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter said unto the Lord, Why cannot I follow thee now? You hear it in the voice of the apostle Peter. I will lay down my life for thy sake, said Peter. He doesn't know what is about to happen, does he? Peter received peace, didn't he? I mean, he saw the the waves, the boisterous waves, be still by the power 
I remember reading in the scriptures that when they experienced that, they were afraid. They recognized that who is this man? That even the winds obey him. They were frightened. I don't know, I think Peter forgot on many occasions some of the miracles that he testified to later on. Jesus said, you know, you're going to follow me afterwards. But how about right now? Can I follow you right now? You know, the Lord is very loving. He could have just washed his hands from his disciples. He said, I'm done. I'm done with this crew. They will forsake me this night. Those worthless disciples. I called them out of darkness. I've given them food to eat. I've provided for them. What have they done for me? Oh, he could have just went on home to glory. But this is what I mean by peace given by Christ as a principle of love. He's looking into the heart of Peter. He said, Peter, will you lay down your life for my sake? He said, before the cock crows tonight, you're going to deny me three times. The peace of God is divinely originating from the throne of God. The river that flows from where? The throne of God. What is this peace, real quick? This peace is twofold. It's very important for us to get this. It's both legally important to understand what peace is. I'm not going to turn to the passages. It's too much here. And it's a peace that's practical. In the first place, the peace of God is brought to us through the blood of Christ, legally. So that we are, God has reconciled all things unto Himself. If you want to know what the all things mean, you just follow it to one another. Comparison. It's all His people. The elect of God. Reconciled to Himself. Otherwise enemies. Otherwise at odds with God. Rebellious. No matter what you say religiously, Peter, your heart is at odds with me. You're not going to last the night, brother. You don't have what it's, it, you're, you just don't have what you need to get through this night. Are you going to die for me? Are you going to lay down your life for me? No, Peter. I'm your substitute tonight. Well, anyway, there's a peace that we are afforded by the grace of God through the blood of the cross. Now, he uses the word cross, it just simply means the blood that came from his veins that we shed from His side. The blood from the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he goes on and he speaks about having now received that reconciliation, being reconciled from the wicked works of the mind. And he speaks about something that takes place now through the gospel. That dual fold or dual technology, however you want to say it, that dual message of reconciliation legally and practically is conveyed also in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. And let me just read that for you because it's so prevalent and so explicit. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, a great chapter in terms of the wonderful legality of the work at the cross and God commending His love toward us. And He says in verse 10, For if... When we were enemies. Now that word if in the New Testament, if you place the word since there, you're going to have a better understanding of how the original was conveyed. Since when you were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. There's the legal aspect. Much more than He had something else. Being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And so, or that word atonement is reconciliation. And so that which was done at the cross over 2,000 years ago is mine by possession through belief. 
I have received the atonement now. I can have the peace right now that passes all understanding. Somebody says, well, I'm a sinner and I'm condemned. I'm like Peter. I've denied the Lord three times. Jesus is a propitiation for sins. Is it sufficient? Certainly. Does His blood cover our sin? Certainly. Faith in that blood cleanses us right now from a sin-sick conscience that's otherwise tormented by sin, by unbelief, by the ravages of sin. Anyway, this beautiful picture is conveyed in many episodes in the Old Testament, and I'll just choose one. When they crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 7, you can read that they made an altar. This altar was made out of whole stones. Significant because it pictures the complete work of the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of altars in the Old Testament. Not always good. In fact, you do a search in your concordance of the great altar. Notice the words great altar. And you'll find out that was an altar unapproved of by God in the Old Testament. It was an alteration to the Word of God. It was an addition. It was an innovation by man. Unapproved of. Cost a civil war. Caused a civil war among the people of God. But anyway, this particular altar of which I spoke of was given through Moses. Moses is a mediator. Very important to remember that fact. But they built an altar, but they were not supposed to use any iron tools. Now, you don't want to invite me over to your house to do electrical work without any tools because I'm helpless as any, any other person. It's not going to happen. I can't get it done without tools. So why is it that when the Lord told them to make this altar with big whole stones and plaster, don't use any tools made by man? Because it's significant to the fact that the blood of Christ, what He shed for us for our reconciliation, was without the human agency of man. That was a, just a picture of what all the Lord would ultimately do. But here's the interesting thing about that peace offering that was made back there as they crossed over the river and into the land of Canaan. They were to eat, all of them were to eat of that, uh, that peace offering. And secondly, they were to have the joy of it. So both those aspects, in terms of receiving the beauty of that peace offering inside, conveyed something that was yet future, but we have today. We can be nourished on the blood of Christ today and receive the peace that passes all understanding and with joy having now received the atonement to know that we are accepted in the beloved. So this is the peace of which I speak. It's a beautiful peace. But my second head is this, and that is there is a prep, excuse me, there is a purpose that is driven here in this text. Notice what he says. In my Father's house are many mansions. I want you to get the drift of this. Up to now, the disciples loved Jesus in His person. They couldn't stand the thought of being separated from Jesus. But they didn't know His work. That was the significant part of His coming. And in this particular chapter, he's introducing the work of the Lord. How important does the preacher always talk about the person and the work? You can't separate them. But up until this point, that's, a, that's exactly what was taking place. They couldn't stand to be without Jesus. Now, his work may have been understood in the context of a political revolution, a overturning of Roman rule, an ultimate bringing in of a Davidic covenant, there at Jerusalem, this, to see the nation rise again from the ashes of uh, slavery, and to see the prominent role of Jerusalem in a world. But that's not what the truth foretold. But now watch this as we hear about this purpose. He said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Here's the purpose. I go... To prepare a place for you. So we have the purpose of God unveiled in a preparation and in a place 
right? The preparation and a place, and this is conveyed through these words here uh, in verse 2. Now, all of us immediately, we tend to have a thinking cap on, and we immediately think about heaven, heaven's pure world. And quite frankly, I can understand that because thinking about heaven when the heart's troubled is such a comforting thing. We'll be rid of all our troubles. No more anguish. The mundane aspect of work day in and day out. A very dissatisfying aspect. Personal peace, as wonderful as it may be, it's very limited and it really doesn't satisfy the soul. Only God can satisfy the soul. That's why they keep coming back. And that's why if you look on those videos, they never do arrive at a conclusion that's satisfactory for the need. It's always incomplete. Well, and so when we look at this phraseology, mansions, my father's house, it's a wonderful thing to think about heaven. But this is not what it speaks to. Now, I know there's scriptures in the Bible we like to take and just take them right out of context, and suit our particular need. Romans 8.28 is one of them. We just love that. It fits us pretty good. And, you know, mankind has got certain crutches that we like to lean on. We need to hear justification from God for all our evil works, kind of blend it all together and make it right. That's not what it teaches over there in Romans 8.28. Neither does it teach here in this second verse... That in heaven you've got a beautiful mansion with a swimming pool, fenced in yard, and ten acres. That's not what it speaks about. It may make you feel good, but that's pure carnal and fleshly. When Paul the Apostle came back from being raptured into the third heaven, which is God's home, he came back and it was unlawful for him to put in words what he experienced in heaven. It was wonderful, there's no doubt about it. But there was no words in the human language that could convey the beauty, the aspect of God's pure world called heaven. No, the mansions here is simply a word that the King James translators have used, you know, to convey permanency, something that is contrary to temporary, something that is permanent, something that's not long-lasting, that will never go away, something that is here with us now and forever. From everlasting to everlasting. That's what it is. Now, why they use the word mansions, I don't know. Some have said, well, that's the uh, Latin Vulgate version here in our text. And so the King James translators were uh, using that. They were influenced by it and used it to convey the same idea. Nothing wrong with that. You know, when you think about a big, beautiful mansion, you think about permanency. I saw one yesterday. Where was I? Saw, you know, it was a mansion. I can't even remember where I was. But what I, th- what I took notice about that particular mansion was that it was very small. Very small. But it was, you know, it had all the look of a, maybe an 1850 mansion. Beautiful brick, the columns, you know, the windows and everything was just so fitting for that era. And uh, I could tell, you know, in that particular day... Uh, it might have mean it might meant of a, a permanent structure in terms of a, a beautiful solid house versus maybe a, a, a something that's construction constructed out of wood and that winds can blow very easily and topsy turvy kind of environment and so you can see the fixation on this idea of a mansion but just remember something here and this is very critical in this text we're not talking about your house are we it says in my father's house. We're not talking about a big house in the heavens filled with mansions. No, we're not. Now, that word in the Greek literally means abode. It's used only one other place in the entirety of the New Testament. And this is an important key for your understanding. Notice with me. Okay? In my Father's house are many mansions. 3438. The word literally means abode. Now, the word house, in my father's house, is really looking back, at least in the immediate literal first occurrence, to John chapter 2, when the Lord refers to the temple as my father's house. It was a house of prayer. They made it a den of thieves. Is that correct? When we look back in the Old Testament, the literal tabernacle was a very square area. 
And it wasn't large, the Holy of Holies. No, it wasn't very large at all. I think it was 144 cubic square. I don't think it was large, but it conveyed the idea of perfection. And it conveyed the idea that this is God's dwelling place among mankind. And through the sacrifices, God would be pleased to make his presence known, the Shekinah glory. But that was back then. Well, the same idea is presented in the New Testament in terms of the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, the abode of God. In my Father's house are many abodes. Now, hold your thought right there for a minute. Because sometimes we immediately go to another phrase in the New Testament in terms of our tabernacle or our house, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's a different thing altogether. We're going to lay this tabernacle aside one day, this earthly tent or house, if you will. It's very temporary, excuse me, this tent. But we're going to have a house in heaven not made with hands. And it's going to be eternal in the heavenly. Now that's something else. We're not talking about that here. But I can understand how we can go that way and run real quick. We're talking about not our house, but our Father's house. In my Father's house. In my Father's house. Jesus said, I will receive you unto myself. I want you to think about who you are. Where the Spirit of God is today. Where? He said in verse 3, I will go and prepare a place for you. And so this idea of the determinate counsel of God in determining all these things that are about to take place have been in the mind of God and in the purpose of God set forth in order to prepare a place for God's people. A place for God. Now, look with me here in verse 23, because this is the only other verse where that word abode is used, the original. And here it is. Jesus answered and said, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we, now notice, here's the phrase I wanted, and we will come unto him, who's we? The Father and the Son. We will come unto him and make our abode with him. In other words, we are the abode of God. We are the house of God. God makes his dwelling place not in a structure by man, a figure of something. God makes his home in our hearts. Now, this is a New Testament teaching. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll go to one. There's several of them, but I'll just I like this one because it's so plain as the nose on your face. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16, know ye not that ye are the temple of God? He said, and that Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? And so how important it is. Other places in the New Testament convey the same idea. And so when the Lord is talking about, I'm going to prepare a place, he's really speaking about, The cross. He's going to the cross. He's going to prepare a place for you by reconciling you unto himself through the expiation of sin. He's going to make you available so that the Holy Spirit can come into your hearts whereby you now will cry, Abba, Father. That you are now home of God Almighty. The Spirit, we serve God, Paul said, In that text we preached on several weeks ago, with or in our spirit. Well, let's move on because there's so much here uh, that we want to capture. Now, one of the things when you do an outline, you know, one, two, three, and so on, it's really not that way in this 14th chapter. It's like a revolving door or like Sister Catherine says, a circle of God's love. You know, it's not like linear. And so you can start in one place and then you can read it over and over again. But in terms of God's overall purpose, there's a preparation going to the cross. There's a place He's making us, the elect of God, His temple. 
And of course, this lays a whole lot of emphasis on that scripture in Corinthians. Why? Because we're no longer our own. We can't live the way we want. That's what the self does. In other words, we belong to God. This body belongs to Him. I can't do with it what I'd like. That's why Paul said in one place, it constraineth me. The love of Christ constraineth me. It compels me. It impels me. I am not my own. You know what sin wants? Sin wants self. Not just self, but enthroned over God. It wants to dictate to God. This is why personal peace, world peace, it's all man-centered. It's not God-centered. It's derived from man. It's for man. It's of man. Got to leave God out of it. Why? Because self dethrones God. It will not have this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, rule over me. Our whole life as a Christian is a life of conformity to the will of God. This is the difficulty of the Christian faith because it's so demanding. I just can't hide in this thing. I can't seek cover. I can't seek alienation. It calls upon me. Anyway, we're moving this idea from this uh, idea of preparing a place, but also in part of this idea of the purpose of God, this purpose-driven, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something conveyed here in, in here that is so powerful that really hasn't been unfolded yet. It's just like the things that we have mentioned, and that is another P word, promise. The promise of the Holy Spirit. I love the day of Pentecost. But the Pentecost is right here. It's in our text. You don't have to go to Acts chapter 2. How important is the day of Pentecost that followed the death of our Lord Jesus Christ 50 days later, somewhere along the line? How important is it? Very important. Because what the Lord promised, what did He promise? The Holy Spirit? Now listen carefully. Let's get it more into detail. Let's define that closer. He said in verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am. Where's the promise? The promise is in the Lord Jesus Christ to be in your heart. Where He is, you are. Where you are, He is. That's the great prayer of John 17. That they may behold my glory. Now, ultimately, we'll do it in heaven without the diminution or whatever that word is that conveys the belittling of this natural flesh to be able to embrace the, the aspects of God. We will be complete in Him. And we, I mean, it will be filled. You know, Paul prayed that we would be filled with a knowledge of God and increase in it. I don't know how you do that, but it's an amazing mystery that we can even be filled with a knowledge of God. Uh, just an amazing thing, and yet increase. What a riddle that might be. But anyway, the promise of the Holy Spirit, how important that. Even the Spirit, verse 17, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth in you, and here's the phrase, and shall be in you. Now he dwelleth with you, that's what it says there, and then comma, and shall be in you, verse 17. This is very significant. As it outlines the promise of God yet to come. Because a lot of people, they get this idea that, well, okay, before the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God did not have any function or operation with people, like back in the Old Testament. Well, we know that's, that's uh, an idea that doesn't come from the Bible. And I don't have the time to prove to you that the new birth is in the Old Testament, as I would like to, but I'll just ask you this question. Was redemption in the Old Testament? Yes, it was. It was. It was in pictures, wasn't it? It was in figures. Was hope in the Old Testament? Was faith in the Old Testament? Sure it was. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him unto righteousness. So be careful about these people today that try to teach the Bible. Because they're out of the Bible. What they get is out of the Bible. They don't get it in the Bible. But anyway, he says, For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. 
This is the important thing about the day of Pentecost. That your sons and your daughters shall prophesy that the Spirit of God will be poured out upon all flesh. How significant is that? Well, in contrast with the Old Testament, how was it that God conveyed His will to the people? He did it, well, here and there. A little here, a little there. But what was the mediator? Well, Moses was one. The fathers were one. But if we break it down, we're going to break it down into three basic offices. Kings, priests, and prophets. They were the anointed of God. God spoke through them. He didn't speak to the common people. What they knew, they learned through the mediators. God says, on the day of Pentecost, I'll be in you. You will not need any man teach you, for you shall be known of me by my Father in you. You see? There will be no need to teach my neighbor about God, for they shall all know me from the least unto the greatest. What an amazing truth. This is what Jesus said is coming. Now, we're going to get into detail, as I had mentioned. The Holy Spirit. What is being conveyed here? The idea is this. That the disciples up to this point know Jesus as I know you here in the flesh. I have a personal acquaintance with you. Well, so did the disciples with the Lord. But the Lord said, that's not good enough. He said in the 16th chapter, it is expedient that I go. Well, in what way is it expedient? How important is it that you go? He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, verse 7 and 16, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. He's talking about His very presence in your heart in a way in which the disciples will have never known before. They will be closer to the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit than they ever could have been in the flesh. They no longer would know the Lord after the flesh. But they would know Him through the Spirit, which is a binding uniformity in the heart, a bonding with God Himself. That's why that the peace that you have through Christ, nobody can ever take away. That's why the preparation of which He did on your behalf, nobody can take away. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And that's why the place that God has prepared for you, that you are the temple of the living Spirit of God, no man can ever take that away. You may be trashed. You may be a martyr. You may sacrifice your life for another. And no man can take the principle of God in you away. You may have to lay this body down one day in sickness in the loss of all comforting things in this world. That personal peace is good, but it works on this time world. It's only for this time world. Brother Paul shares the experience of visiting a very rich woman. And she said to him, she said, Brother Paul, said, money won't make you happy at all, but it'll make you comfortable in your misery. She knew something about misery and the discomfort of the nature. And she also knew something about a certain personal satisfaction that money does answer all things. Much like a lot of things in life, we don't deny that. Christians don't live in some bubble, you know, like we don't have our feet attached to the ground. No, we're genuinely human, believe it or not. You can pinch the person next to you. We are real living people. We need to work for a living. We need to provide for our families. All these kind of things. God didn't exempt you from that. What He's exempted you from through the power of the Holy Spirit is that you be exceptional. That you would be sanctified and set apart. He said, come out from among them and be ye separate. Why? Because you bear the spot of His children. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. We're going to move on now to the last thing. Here's my notes. I don't ever even get to look at them. They just get piled in the... i got a pile of notes at home. But the last aspect, which I think is one of the most important aspects of understanding this idea 
of the love of God and the principle of it. The principle of it. You know, you can go to the third chapter of the Gospel of John and hear about the actual aspect of the love of God, the immeasurable aspect that God so loved the world that He gave. You can see in the sacrifice of His Son the love of God, the extent of it. That God so loved the world. It was no longer limited to the land of Palestine. It was no longer revealed or manifested to a small, insignificant group of people that rebelled against it in the process. It was now broadened the scope out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. It would be a love of God which was and would be immeasurable. That the extent of God's love, you could not prevent it. The love of God entering into the hearts of people wherever they may be. Whatever race, whatever kindred, whatever tribe. God's love is there first. Somebody says, we got to get the missionary to him. we got to get him saved. we got to do all this. No, God, he's already beat you to it. Amen. He sent his spirit into their hearts, crying, Abba, Father, according to his own timetable. See, when I said about regeneration in the Old Testament, just remember about regeneration. It's a covenant aspect of the work of God. It's a co- Election is in the Old Testament. Redemption is in the Old Testament. And regeneration, every three aspect of God's covenant work is something that He Himself does for you. That's why, well, let's move on. Now, in this idea of the people, this is the last point. The people of God's love. Now, in this chapter, it's really neat because we have actually three people and several more that are mentioned, but three by name. Now, the three mentioned by name are Thomas. Now, the questions they ask are very significant. We might ask the same. Now, remember, they know Jesus uh, intuitively in a personal acquaintance manner. But they, in particular, know something more than maybe the typical Pharisee who sees Jesus with his naked eye. He said, whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Now, that Greek word there is a word that denotes intuition, something in their hearts. They know. They know they've been given something that others have not been given. But Thomas, he said unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? So his question was primarily about the way. How is it? Where is it? Where's the way? Where is this that we know intuitively? Show us the way. And I take that from the 16th chapter when he says, But none, Jesus, to his disciples, none of you have asked me, Whither goest thou? Where am I going? He said, I'm going someplace, and I'm going to come again. Where are you going? I'm going to come again. A lot of people immediately think, Well, he's going to come the second time when he comes back in judgment with a flaming power of his judgment upon mankind. Somewhere future. No. He's coming again in the person of the Holy Spirit when he enters into the hearts of his people and makes them his abode. That's what he refers to, his coming again. If he doesn't go, then they're going to be left what? When he leaves, he dies, goes to heaven, what will they be left if there's no promise of the Holy Spirit? He says they'll be orphans. Look what it says here. Verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. Literally, that word in the Greek is orphans. I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you by yourself. He says, I will come to you, and yet a little while the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. So, Philip, Thomas, and Judas all have these questions. Philip asked the question, show us the Father, and it will suffice. And then Judas, verse 22, he asked the question, now this is not Iscariot. This is the fellow that wrote the book of Jude. Jude, you could, you could replace this with Jude. He said unto him, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? That's a good question. How is it that the Lord will be sovereignly displaying that miraculous gift of the Holy Ghost? How do you do that? Good question. 
Well, uh, the other aspect in this text that I like is this idea that's presented by how we know this love. This love which is conveyed. Notice verse 21, it's a love that obeys. Um, in the, in, there's a love that learns. There's a love that is followed, that keeps. Notice what he says in verse 23, if a man keep my words, and my Father will love him. Notice in verse 24, he that loveth me not, keepeth not my saying. So there's a keeping of the words of God. What does he mean? About the idea, notice in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now automatically, we run to the idea that to love God is to keep His Ten Commandments, the moral law. That's pretty good. That's not what he means though. Now this is significant. Most people don't get this. What is the commandment that the Lord has? If you understand this commandment, you'll understand where your, what your role is and how the love of God in your heart is to be displayed. This idea of the word commandment reflects the purpose of God in coming, in preparing a place and making a place for you, in going away and sending the promise of the Holy Spirit. But the commandment in particular references the love that God has for His people. It does not mean to keep the ten moral commandments of the law, although... In love you do that because the law is the summation of the law. Or excuse me, love is the summation of the, the Ten Commandments. It's in a spiritual way though. But I refer your attention to the previous chapter and we'll read verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. This is a beautiful aspect that the Father and the Son share in this great redemptive work. It is so powerful that we fail to realize the importance of this particular text. The Lord did not lean on His disciples at, the, at this particular time. He didn't depend on them. He was totally sufficient in and of Himself, but He didn't leave them hopeless. It's like in His dying hour, He cared for them. He reached out to them with His arms, with His heart, because this is the purpose for which He came. All that the Father has given Him in that covenant of grace before the foundation of the world are realized now as He pursues the cross, the purpose for which He came to save His people from their sins. And in this process, He will be glorified. Now, this word glorified in 31 of the 13th chapter is a word that reminds us of Moses when he would see the glorifying aspect of God's presence. When God will pass by him and he will be enabled by God's grace to see the hinder parts of the Lord. And in that aspect of that revelation to Moses, he will reveal his love for his people. Notice what he says here. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself. And straightway glorify Him. There's this beautiful relationship we can only imagine by these tremendous words. It reminds me of the circle, the imagery of the circles of the spirits around the throne of God. And circles within a circle. This beautiful community of the glory of God, shaped in such a way that it is unfathomable, incomprehensible, and yet it beautifully portrays the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, here it is, that ye love one another, and here's the phrase I want, as I have loved you. The Lord Jesus Christ, the commandment that He received of the Father is embedded in this idea, this theological import, that the Lord God loves us in Christ, that He came to die for us. That is keeping the commandment of God. That is honoring and glorifying to God. And what we do 
what we do in this time world. He who is begotten of God loveth him also that is begotten. This imagery is portrayed in the, in, in the epistles of John over and over again. That by loving others, we show that God loves us. It's proof positive that the Spirit of God is in us. That we extend this love one to another. And Brother Compton always would say, it's not love for another. I can have love for you from a distance. But I've got love to you. It's hand to hand. It's in the trenches. It's taking your burden, placing it upon my back. It's caring. It's charity in action. It's agape love. That's what this love is. It's what Christ displayed at the cross and looking at his disciples and said, I love you even though you've denied me and you can't figure it out and you can't help me. I'm going to love you and I'm going to love you to the end. And when I go, I'm going to be with you through the power of the Holy Spirit and I'm going to make known this to you and I'm going to bless you for it. This is the commandment that I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now let me close with this. <clears throat> on the day of Pentecost, by the way, when the Lord ascended on heaven and sat down at the right hand of majesty, do you know what he received from the Father? Does anybody here know, Acts chapter 2, what he received of the Father? I'll tell you. He received the spirit of promise. Did you know that? He, the Lord, received the spirit of promise. Why? So that he could give it to you. The reward of his work was the blessing of the promise. The reward for the grace of God in your heart, by God's grace, is that you would know him. Your reward is God. God in your heart. The reward for Christ's work. Now, Peter, if you read the Gospel of John, you might come to its conclusion at the 20th chapter. But there's an appendix, if you will. There's something in additional to the first 20 chapters of John. The 21st chapter is very significant. Because in the 21st chapter of John, it conveys this love that God had for Peter. You know what Peter said? Now, he's seen the Lord. This is the third time that the Lord will have appeared to the disciples there on the seashore. Here's what Peter said. He's got personal peace right here. He said, I'm going fishing. After all that has transpired, you would think the apostle Peter would be just shouting happy. That he would be just, I mean, climbing the mountaintops, waiting, finding out where is Jesus. I mean, he's seen enough now. But what did he say? See, he still hasn't got it. He's still not converted yet, if you will. By the way, the day of Pentecost is very significant in the church, the history of the church. But that's not where the church began. The church began a long time ago. On the seashore of the Galilean Sea, when you had the head of the church calling disciples follow me, being baptized, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But, and this is a big but, the church was in its infancy. It wasn't organized yet. And even on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't organized. We read about things going on in the book of Acts. We say, well, we don't see that today. There's a reason for that. But anyway, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came down filled the hearts of his people. They spake in all kinds of different languages. They were conveying the power of the Spirit in such a way that they were impressed. The Apostle Peter was not there yet. The Apostle Peter is on the seashore. He said, I'm going fishing. And the way I see that is this. I see somebody dejected in some measure or form. I see somebody that looked at his past in light of the present and saying, I have not, I failed the Lord. I, I, I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. I gave up on the Lord. I denied him, as he said. He remembered that. He wept bitterly when the Lord looked upon him. And so I don't believe the Lord, uh, I don't believe, excuse me, Peter had forgotten that event. I don't think he forgot any of the event, events that were transpiring in the last uh, several days or weeks. 
But I do believe that he was dejected. But here's the purpose of God. You see, here's the purpose of God in Christ. It's for the restoration of His people. It's for the renewal by the Holy Ghost. It's for the happy enjoyment of His presence. It's the fulfillment of His work in you and through you. Now, Peter had this recycled Monday morning attitude, did he not? I'm going fishing. Because in terms of his mindset, that's the only thing he could really do and accomplish and satisfy. But God said something else to him. He said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. You know what he said? He said, you feed my lambs. And so the the fruition of the fruit of God, the love of God in your heart, the principle of love in your heart today is to keep the commandment of God, and that is the love of God directed to and toward His people. It's in the select providential blessing provided you in this time world whereby you can demonstrate the love of God shown you on the cross at Calvary. This is the greatest evidence that you can have. You can be theologically impoverished. You may not understand the great doctrines of the Bible. You may not even be ever baptized or join a church. But you can have the love of God in your heart. Now, in this particular fashion in which he told Peter to feed my sheep, denotes something very important. It's within the confines of the gospel. He called men to preach the gospel. And so we have an added blessing here today when we measure the love of God. We have an added blessing because we have the church. And the church is a habitation of God through the Spirit. What goes on in me is broadened among those of mutual faith and love. And it's compounded. It's compounded. It goes like this up on a scale. And we enjoy the love of Christ through the love that we have toward our brothers and sisters. I believe that's primarily the message that I had for you today. May the Lord bless you. You've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.